Section 57 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Fallis. The Mysteries of London, Volume 2, by George W. M. Reynolds. Section 57. Chapter 191. Cranky Jim's History Continued. Hobart Town is the capital of Van Diemen's Land, and is beautifully placed on the banks of an estuary called the Derwent. The streets are spacious, the houses are built of brick, and the roofs, covered with shingles, have the appearance of being slated. Mount Wellington rises behind the town to the height of four thousand feet, and is almost entirely clothed with forests. There is in Hobart Town a spacious house of correction for females. It is called the Factory, and contained at that time about two hundred and fifty prisoners. They were employed in picking and spinning wool, and in washing for the hospital, orphan school, and other institutions. The women were dressed in a prison garb, and had their hair cut close, which they naturally considered a grievous infliction of tyranny. When they misbehaved themselves, they were put into solitary confinement, and I heard that many of them had gone raving mad while enduring that horrible mental torture. I saw a chain-gang of a hundred and ten convicts employed in raising a causeway across a muddy flat in the Derwent. They looked miserably unhealthy, pale and emaciated, being half-starved, overworked, and compelled to drink very bad water. The government house is a fine building on the banks of the Derwent, and about a mile from the town. The penitentiary at Hobart Town contains about six hundred prisoners, and is the principal receptacle for newly arrived convicts. They are sent out in gangs, under overseers and guards, to work on the roads, or as carpenters, builders, sawyers, or masons in the various departments. After remaining almost a fortnight at Hobart Town, the bark sailed for England, by way of Cape Horn, and I was now relieved from all fears of detection, at least for the present. As I have spoken of the condition of the female convicts in Hobart Town, I may as well give you some account of how transportation affects women, for you may be sure that I heard enough of that subject, both at Sydney and at Macquarie Harbour. A female convict ship is fitted up on precisely the same plan as that of the men, with the addition of shelves whereon to stow away the tea crockery. The women's rations are the same as the men's, with the extra comforts of tea and sugar. This they have for breakfast, and oatmeal for supper. No guard of soldiers is required on board, nor is there a bulkhead across the upper decks and midships. Instead of captains of the vessel, there are matrons, appointed by the surgeon to take care of the morals of the rest, and these matrons are usually old brothel-keepers or procuresses, who know how to feign a sanctity which produces a favourable impression in their behalf. Women convicts are dreadfully quarrelsome, and their language is said to be more disgusting and filthy than that of the men. 
however vigilant the surgeon may be, it is impossible altogether to prevent intercourse between the females and the sailors, and it often happens that some of the fair ones, on their arrival in the colony, are in a way to increase the Australian population. Perhaps the surgeon himself may take a fancy to one or two of the best-looking, and these are sure to obtain great indulgences, such as being appointed nurses to the sick, or being permitted to remain on the sick list throughout the voyage, which is an excuse for allowing them wine and other little comforts. The women always speak to and of each other as ladies, and the old procuresses, when chosen as matrons, are treated with the respectful missus. Thus it is always, ladies, come forward for your pork, or ladies, come up for your biscuit, or ladies, the puddings are cooked. Of an evening they dance or sing, and as often quarrel and fight. This cannot be wondered at when it is remembered that there is no attempt at classification, and women who may have been chaste in person, though criminal in other respects, are compelled to herd with prostitutes of all degrees, from the lowest troll that skulks in the courts leading out of Fleet Street to the fashionable nymph who displays her charms at the theatre. The very chastity of a woman who has been sentenced perhaps for robbing furnished lodgings, or plundering her master in her capacity of servant, or for committing a forgery, is made a reproach to her by the prostitutes and old procuresses, and her life is miserable. Moreover, it is next to impossible that she can escape a contamination which prepares her for a life of profligacy when she reaches the colony. Before the female convict ship leaves the Thames, numbers of old procuresses and brothel-keepers go on board to take leave of the girls with whom they are acquainted. These hags, dressed out in their gayest garb, and pretending to be overwhelmed with grief, while they really are with gin, represent themselves to be the mothers or aunts of the poor dear creatures who have got into trouble, and assure the surgeon that their so-called daughters or nieces were most excellent girls, and bore exemplary characters previous to their present misfortune. The surgeon, if a novice or a humane man, believes the tale, and is sure to treat with kindness the poor creatures thus recommended to him. About twenty years ago, a religious society in London sent out, in an emigrant ship, twelve reclaimed unfortunate girls, with the hope that they might form good matrimonial connections among the free settlers in the colony, there always having been, especially at first, a great dearth of European females in Australia. These girls were called the Twelve Apostles, and all England ran with good work which has been accomplished by the religious society. But on the arrival of the Twelve Apostles at Sydney, seven of them were found to be in the family way by the sailors, and the others immediately entered on a course of unbounded licentiousness. A few days before the female convict vessel arrives at Sydney, the women, old and young, busy themselves in getting ready their finery for landing. The debarkation of female convicts always takes place with great effect. The prostitutes appear in their most flaunting attire, and many of them have gold ornaments about them. They are then sent to the Parmamatta factory. This establishment cannot be looked on as a place of punishment, nor as a place of reformation. The inmates are well fed and are put to no labor. There is an extensive garden in which they can walk at pleasure, 
Some of them are allotted to free settlers requiring servants, but the grand hope of the female convict is to marry. This prospect is materially aided by the fact that both free settlers and ticket-of-leave convicts are allowed to seek for helpmates in the factory. When they call for that purpose, the fair penitents are drawn up in a row, and the wife-seeking individual inspects them as a general does his army, or a butcher the sheep in Smithfield Market. If he fancies one of the candidates, he beckons her from the rank, and they retire to a distance to converse. Should a matrimonial arrangement be made, the business is soon finished by the aid of a clergyman." But if no amicable understanding is come to, the nymph returns to the rank, and the swain chooses another, and so on, until the object of his visit is accomplished. So anxious are the unmarried free settlers or the ticket-of-leave convicts to change their single state of blessedness, and so ready are the fair sex to meet their wishes, that few women whose husbands die remain widows a couple of days, some not more than four-and-twenty hours." A few years before I was in the colony, an old settler saw a convict girl performing penance on a market day, with her gown-tail drawn over her head, for drunkenness and disorderly conduct in the factory. He walked straight up to her, regardless of the hootings of the crowd, and proposed marriage. She was candid enough to confess to him that she was five months gone in the family way, by a master to whom she had been allotted ere she returned to the factory." But the amorous swain, who was nearly sixty, was so much struck by her black eyes and plump shape that he expressed his readiness to take her for better or worse, and she had not left the place of punishment an hour ere she was married to one of the richest settlers in the colony. I will tell you one more anecdote relative to Australian marriages. A very handsome woman was transported for shoplifting, her third offence of the kind. She left a husband behind her in England. On her arrival at Sydney, she was allotted to an elderly gentleman, a free settler, and who, being a bachelor, sought to make her his mistress. She, however, resisted his overtures, hoping that he would make her his wife, as he was not aware that she had a husband in her native country. Time wore on, he urgent, she obstinate, he declining matrimonial bonds. At length she received a black-edged letter from her mother in England, and upon being questioned by her master, she stated that its contents made a great alteration in her circumstances. More she would not tell him. He was afraid of losing his handsome servant, and agreed to marry her. They were united accordingly. When the nuptial knot was indissolubly tied, he begged his beloved wife to explain the nature of the black-edged letter. "'There is now no need for any further mystery,' she said. "'The truth is I could not marry you before, "'because I had a husband living in England. "'That black-edged letter conveyed to me the welcome news "'that he was hanged five months ago at the Old Bailey, "'and thus nothing now stands in the way of our happiness. "'And that woman made the rich settler a most exemplary wife.' I have now given you an insight into the morals of the female, as well as those of the male convicts, and you may also perceive that while transportation is actually a means of pleasing variety of scene and habits to the woman, it is an earthly hell to the man. 
I know that transportation is spoken of as something very light, a mere change of climate, among those thieves in England who have never yet crossed the water, but they are woefully mistaken. Transportation was once a trivial punishment, when all convicts were allotted to settlers, and money would purchase tickets of leave, or when a convict's wife, if he had one, might go out in the next ship with all the swag which his crimes had produced, and on her arrival in the colony apply for her husband to be allotted to her as her servant, by which step he became a free man, opened a public house or some kind of shop, and made a fortune. Those were glorious times for convicts, but all that system has been changed. Now you have road gangs and hulk gangs and quarrying gangs, men who work in chains and who cannot obtain a sufficiency of food. There is also Norfolk Island, Garden of Eden and natural loveliness, rendered an earthly hell by human occupation. Oh, let not the opinion prevail that transportation is no punishment. Let not those who are young in the ways of iniquity pursue their career under the impression that exile to Australia is nothing more than a pleasant change of scene. They will too soon discover how miserably they are mistaken, and when they feel the galling chain upon their ankles, when they find themselves toiling amidst the incessant damps of Macquarie, or on the hard roads of Van Diemen's Land, or in the quarries of Norfolk Island, when they are laboring in forests where every step may arouse a venomous snake whose bite is death, or where a falling tree may crush them beneath its weight— when they are exposed to the brutality of overseers, or the still more intolerable cruelty of their companions, when they sleep in constant dread of being murdered by their fellow convicts, and awake only to the dull monotony of a life of intense and heart-breaking labour, then will they loathe their very existence, and dare all the perils of starvation, or the horrors of cannibalism, in order to escape from those scenes of ineffable misery." But I need say no more upon this subject. The bark, in which I worked my passage to Europe, reached England in safety, and I was once more at large in my native country. Yes, I was free to go whithersoever I would, and to avenge myself on him who had betrayed me to justice. The hope of some day consummating that vengeance had never deserted me from the moment I was sentenced in the central criminal court. It had animated me throughout all the miseries, the toils, and the hardships which I have related to you. It inspired me with courage to dare the dangers of an escape from Macquarie. Its effect was the same when I resolved upon quitting Norfolk Island. I have once had my mortal foe within my reach, but my hand dealt not the blow with sufficient force. It will not fail next time. I know that vengeance is a crime, but I cannot subdue those feelings which prompt me to punish the man whose perfidy sent me into exile. In all other respects I am reformed, completely reformed. Not that the authorities in Australia or Norfolk Island have in any way contributed to this moral change which has come over me. No, my own meditations and reflections have induced me to toil in order to earn an honest livelihood. I will never steal again. I would die sooner. I would also rather die by my own hand than return to the horrors of Macquarie or Norfolk Island. But my vengeance, oh, I must gratify my vengeance, and I care not what may become of me afterwards. 
Cranky Jem then related so much of his adventures with the gypsies as did not involve a betrayal of any of their secrets, and concluded his recital by a concise account of his sudden meeting with, and attack upon, the resurrection man at a certain house in St. Giles. Chapter 192 The Mint, the Forty Thieves Reader, if you stroll down that portion of the Southwark Bridge Road, which lies between Union Street and Great Suffolk Street, you will perceive, midway, and on your left hand, a large mound of earth, heaped on an open space, doubtless, intended for building ground. At the southern extremity of this mound, on which all the offal from the adjacent houses is thrown, and where vagabond boys are constantly collected— is the entrance into an assemblage of miserable straits, alleys, and courts, forming one of the vilest, most dangerous, and most demoralized districts of this huge metropolis. The houses are old, gloomy, and somber. Some of them have the upper part, beginning with the first floor, projecting at least three feet over the thoroughfares, for we cannot say over the pavement. Most of the doors stand open, and reveal low, dark, and filthy passages, the mere aspect of which compels the passer-by to get into the middle of the way, for fear of being suddenly dragged into those sinister dens, which seem fitted for crimes of the blackest dye. This is no exaggeration. Even in the daytime, one shudders at the cutthroat appearances of the places into the full depths of whose gloom the eye cannot entirely penetrate. But by night, the mint, for it is of this district that we are now writing, is far more calculated to inspire the boldest heart with alarm than the thickest forest or the wildest heath ever infested by banditti. The houses in the mint give one an idea of those dens in which murder may be committed without the least chance of detection, and yet that district swarms with population." But of what kind are its inhabitants? The refuse and the most criminal of the metropolis. There people follow trades as a blind to avert suspicions relative to their real calling, for they are actually housebreakers or thieves themselves, or else the companions and abettors of such villains. In passing through the mazes of the mint, especially in Mint Street itself, you will observe more ill-looking fellows and revolting women in five minutes than you will see either on Saffron Hill or in Bethnal Green in an hour. Take the entire district that is bounded on the north by Peter Street, on the south by Great Suffolk Street, on the east by Blackman Street and High Street, and on the west by the Southwark Bridge Road. Take this small section of the metropolis, and believe us when we state that within those limits there is concentrated more depravity in all its myriad phases than many persons could suppose to exist in the entire kingdom. The mint was once a sanctuary, like Whitefriars, and although the law has deprived it of its ancient privileges, its inhabitants still maintain them, by a tacit understanding with each other, to the extent of their power. Thus, if a villain, of whom the officers of justice are in search, takes refuge at a lodging in the mint, the landlord will keep his secret in spite of every inducement." The only danger which he might incur would be at the hands of the lowest description of buzzcloaks, dummy hunters, area sneaks, and vampers who dwell in that district. 
There is no part of Paris that can compare with the mint in squalor, filth, or moral depravity. No, not even the street and the island of the city where Eugene Sue has placed his celebrated tapis franc. Let those who happen to visit the mint, after reading this description thereof, mark well the countenances of the inhabitants whom they will meet in that gloomy labyrinth. Hardened ruffianism characterizes the men. Insolent, leering, and shameless looks express the depravity of the women. The boys have the sneaking, shuffling manner of juvenile thieves. The girls, even of a tender age, possess the brazen air of incipient profligacy. It was about nine o'clock in the evening when the resurrection man, wrapped in a thick and capacious pea-coat, the collar of which concealed all the lower part of his countenance, turned hastily from the Southwark Bridge Road into Mint Street. The weather was piercingly cold, and the sleet was peppering down with painful violence. The resurrection man accordingly buried his face as much as possible in the collar of his coat, and neither looked to the right nor left as he proceeded on his way. To this circumstance may be attributed the fact that one so cautious and wary as he should now fail to observe that his motions were watched and his steps dogged by a lad whose countenance was also well concealed by a high collar, which was drawn up to his ears. In order to avoid unnecessary mystification, we may as well observe that this youth was Henry Holford. The resurrection man pursued his way along Mint Street, and suddenly turned into a small court on the left-hand side. There he knocked at a door in a peculiar manner, whistling a single sharp shrill note at the same time, and in another moment Holford saw him enter the house. "'Well, Mr. Tidkins,' said a boy of about fourteen, who had opened the door to admit the formidable individual with whom he was evidently well acquainted.' "'A precious cold night, aren't it?' "'Very, my lad,' answered the resurrection man, turning down his collar so that the light of the candle which the boy held gleamed upon his cadaverous countenance. "'Is the bully grand at home?' A reply in the affirmative was given, and the boy led the way, up a narrow and dilapidated staircase, to a large room where a great number of youths, whose ages varied from twelve to eighteen, were seated at a table, drinking and smoking. The organization of this society of juvenile reprobates requires a detailed notice. The association consisted of thirty-nine co-equals and one chief, who was denominated the Bully Grand. The fraternity was called the Forty Thieves, whether in consequence of the founders having accidentally amounted to precisely that number, or whether the idea of emulating the celebrated heroes of the Arabian tale, we cannot determine. The society had, however, been established for upwards of thirty years at the time of which we are writing, and is in existence at this present moment. The rules of the association may thus be briefly summed up. The society consists of forty members, including the Bully Grand. Candidates for admission are eligible at twelve years of age. When a member reaches the age of eighteen, he must retire from the association. This rule does not, however, apply to the Bully Grand, who is not eligible for that situation until he has actually reached the age of eighteen and has been a member for at least four years. Each candidate for membership must be guaranteed as to eligibility and honor, 
that honour which is necessary amongst thieves, by three members of good standing in the society, and should any member misconduct himself, or withhold a portion of any booty which he may acquire, his guarantees are responsible for him. The bully grand must find twelve guarantees amongst the oldest members. His power is in most respects absolute, and the greatest deference is paid to him. The modes of proceeding are as follows. The metropolis is divided into twelve districts, distinguished thus. 1. The Regent's Park. 2. Pentonville. 3. Hoxton. 4. Finsbury. 5. City. 6. Tower Hamlets. 7. Westminster. 8. Pimlico. 9. Hyde Park. 10. Grosvenor Square. 11. Lambeth. 12. The Borough. Three members are allotted to each district, and are changed in due rotation every day. Thus, the three who take the Regent's Park District on Monday pass to the Pentonville District on Tuesday, the Hoxton District on Wednesday, and so on. Thus, 36 members are every day employed in the district service. The Bully Grand and the three others, in the meantime, attend to the disposal of the stolen property and to the various business of the fraternity. In every district there is a public house or boozing ken in the interest of the association, and to the landlords of these flash cribs is the produce of each day's work consigned in the evening. The house in the mint is merely a place of meeting once a fortnight, a residence for the Bully Grand, and the central depot to which articles are conveyed from the care of the district boozing kens. The minor regulations and bylaws may be thus summed up. Of the three members allotted to each district, the oldest member acts as the chief, and guides the plan of proceedings according to his discretion. Should any member be proved to have secreted booty, his guarantees must pay the value of it, and with them rests the punishment of the defaulter. General meetings take place at the headquarters in the Mint on the first and third Wednesday in every month but if the Bully Grand wishes to call an extraordinary assembly, or to summon any particular member or members to his presence, he must leave notices to that effect with the landlords of the district houses of call. The members are to effect no robberies by violence, nor to break into houses. Their proceedings must be effected by sleight of hand, cunning, and artifice. All disputes must be referred to the Bully Grand for settlement." The booty must be converted into money, and the cash divided fairly between all the members every fortnight, a certain percentage being allotted by way of salary to the Bully Grand. Such are the principles upon which the association of the Forty Thieves is based. Every precaution is adopted, by means of the guarantees, to prevent the admission of unsuitable members, and to ensure the fidelity and honour of those who belong to the fraternity. When a member gets into trouble, persons of apparent respectability come forward to give the lad a character, so that magistrates or judges are quite bewildered by the assurances that it must be a mistake, that the prisoner is an honest, hard-working boy, belonging to poor but respectable parents in the country, or that so convinced is the witness of the lad's innocence that he will instantly take him into his service if the magistrate will discharge him. 
while a member remains in prison, previous to trial, the funds of the association provide him with the best food allowed to enter the jail, and, if he be condemned to a term of incarceration in the house of correction, he looks forward to the banquet that will be given in the mint to celebrate the day of his release. Moreover, a member does not lose his right to a share of the funds realized during his imprisonment. Thus, every inducement is adopted to prevent members who get into trouble from peaching against their comrades or making any revelations calculated to compromise the safety of the society. It was a fortnightly meeting of the society when the resurrection man visited the house in the mint, on the occasion of which we were ere now speaking. The forty thieves were all gathered round a board formed of several rude deal-tables placed together, and literally groaning beneath the weight of pewter pots, bottles, jugs, etc. The tallow candles burnt like stars seen through a mist, so dense was the tobacco smoke in the apartment. At the upper end of the table sat the bully grand, a tall, well-dressed, good-looking young man, with a profusion of hair, but no whiskers, and little of that bluish appearance on the chin which denotes a beard. His aspect was therefore even more juvenile than was consistent with his age, which was about twenty-five. He possessed a splendid set of teeth, of which he seemed very proud, and his delicate white hand, which had never been applied to any harder work than picking pockets, was waved gently backward and forward when he spoke. Around the table there were fine materials for the study of a phrenologist. Such a concatenation of varied physiognomies was not often to be met with, because none of the charities nor amenities of life were there delineated. Those countenances were indices only of vice in all its grades and phases. The resurrection man was welcomed with a hum of applause on the part of the members, and with outstretched hands by the bully grand, near whom he was invited to take a seat. "'The business of the evening is over, Mr. Tidkins,' said Mr. Tunks, for so the bully grand was named, "'and we are now deep in the pleasures of the meeting, as you see. Help yourself. There are spirits of all kinds, and pipes or cigars, whichever you prefer.' "'Have you any information to give me?' inquired Tidkins in a low tone. Plenty, but not at this moment, Mr. Tidkins. Take a glass of something to dispel the cold, and by and by we will talk on matters of business. There's plenty of time, and many of my young friends here would no doubt be proud to give you a specimen of their vocal powers. Let me see, whose turn is it? Leary Lipkins, sir, whispered a boy who sat near the bully grand. "'Oh, Leary Lipkins, is it?' said Tunks aloud. "'Now, Brother Lipkins, the company are waiting for an opportunity to drink to your health and song.' Mr. Lipkins, a sharp-looking, hatchet-faced, restless-eyed youth of about sixteen, did not require much pressing, ere he favoured his audience with the following sample of vocal melody. The Sign of the Fiddle there's not in all London a tavern so gay as that where the knowing ones meet of a day. So long as a farthing remains to my share, I'll drink at the tavern and never elsewhere. Yet it is not that comforts there only combine, nor because it dispenses good brandy and wine. Tis not the sweet odour of pipe and cigar. Oh no, tis a something more cosy by far. 
"'Tis that friends of the light-fingered craft are all nigh, "'who drink till the cellar itself should be dry, "'and teach you to feel how existence may please "'when passed in the presence of cronies like these. "'Sweet sign of the fiddle, how long could I dwell "'in thy tap full of smoke with the friends I love well, "'when bailiffs no longer the alleys infest, "'and duns like their bills have relapsed into rest.' "'Bravo! Bravo! Bravo!' echoed on all sides, when this elegant effusion was brought to a close. The Bully Grand then rose, and spoke in the following manner. "'Gentlemen, in proposing the health of our excellent brother Leary Lipkins, I might spare eulogy, his merits being so well known to us all.' but i feel that there are times when it is necessary to expatiate somewhat on the excellent qualities of the leading members of our honourable society in order to encourage an emulative feeling in the breasts of our younger brethren such an occasion as the present one when we are all thus sociably assembled gentlemen you all know leary lipkins cheers and cries of we do we do you all know that he is indeed leery in every sense of the word. Hear, hear! He can see through the best bit of broadcloth that ever covered a swell's pocket. There seems to be a sort of magnetic attraction between his fingers and a gold watch in the fob of a Bond Street lounger. Cheers! Talk of mesmerism! Why, Leary Lipkins can send a gentleman into a complete state of coma as he walks along the streets, so that he never can possibly feel Leary's hands in his pockets. Gentlemen, I hold Leary Lipkins up to you as an excellent example, and beg to propose his very good health. The toast was drunk with three times three. Mr. Lipkins returned thanks in what a newspaper reporter would term a neat speech, and he then exercised the usual privilege of calling upon a particular individual for a song. A certain Master Tripes Todkinson accordingly indulged his companions in the following manner. The Compassionate Lady and the Chimney Sweep Pray who's the little boy that is dancing so nimbly? Come marry, bring a halfpenny down. Please, ma'am, I'm the feller as swept your chimbley, and I'm very much obliged for the brown. Alas, how his schooling has been neglected, for perhaps his kind father's dead. No, ma'am, he's a tinker as is very much respected, and this morning he's drunk in bed. Perchance tis a motherless child that they fixed on to dance, does your mamma still live? Yes, ma'am, at this moment she's staying at Brixton, with a gentleman as keeps a mill. Poor child, he is miserably clad, how shocking not to give him some clothes were a sin. Thank ye, ma'am, but I doesn't want no shoe nor stocking. I'd rather have a quartern of gin. The bully grand proposed the health of Master Tripes Todkinson in a speech which was mightily applauded, and Master Tripes Todkinson, having duly returned thanks, called on Master Bandy-legged Diggs to continue the vocal harmony. This invitation was responded to with as much readiness as Master Diggs would have displayed in easing an elderly gentleman in a crowd of his purse, and the air with which he favoured his audience ran thus— the last oath. Upon the drop he turned to swear a parting oath, he cursed the parson and Jack Ketch, and he coolly damned them both. He listened to the hum of the crowds that gathered nigh, and he carelessly remarked, What a famous man am I!
Beside the scaffold's foot his mistress piped her eye. She waved to him her dirty rag and whimpering said goodbye. She mourned the good old times that ne'er could come again when he brought her home a well-lined purse, but all her tears were vain. Poor Jack was soon turned off and gallantly was hung. There was a sigh in every breast, a groan on every tongue. Go gaze upon his course and remember then you see the bravest robber that has been or ever more shall be. We need scarcely observe that this chant was received with as much favor as the preceding ones. The resurrection man was, however, growing impatient for the reader doubtless comprehends enough of his character to be well aware that Tidkins was not one who loved pleasure better than business. He looked at his watch and cast a significant glance towards the bully grand. "'What o'clock is it, Mr. Tidkins?' inquired that great functionary. "'Half-past ten was the answer.' "'Well, I will devote my attention to you in a few minutes,' said Tunks. "'You may rest perfectly easy. "'I have obtained information on every point in which you are interested. "'But hark, Shuffling Simon is going to speak.' "'A lad of about seventeen, who had a weakness in the joints of his knees, "'and walked in a fashion which had led to the nickname mentioned by the Bully Grand, "'rose from his seat and proposed the health of Mr. Tunks.' the chief of the Society of the Forty Thieves. Then followed a tremendous clattering of bottles and glasses, as the company filled up bumpers in order to pay due honour to the toast, and every one, save the Grand himself, rose. The health was drunk with rounds of applause, a pause of a few moments ensued, and then shuffling Simon commenced the following complimentary song, in the repetition of which all the other adherents of the chief vociferously joined. Prosper the Grand! Prosper our bully Grand! Great Tunks our noble Grand! Prosper the Grand! Send him good swag enough! Heart made of sterling stuff! Long to be up to snuff! Prosper the grand, save him from all mishaps, scatter blue bottle traps throughout the land, confound the busy beak, flourish the area sneak, in tunks a chief we seek, prosper the grand, the best lush on the board to tunks's health be poured by all the band, may he continue free, nor ever treadmill see, and all shall shout with glee, prosper the grand. It was really extremely refreshing for the resurrection man to contemplate the deep manifestation of loyalty with which the thirty-nine thieves sang the preceding air. Nor less was it an imposing spectacle when the object of that adoration rose from his seat, waved his right hand, and poured forth his gratitude in a most gracious speech. This ceremony being accomplished, the grand, what a pity it was that so elegant and elevated a personage had retained his unworthy patronymic of Tunks, took a candle from the table, and conducted the resurrection man downstairs into a back room which the chief denominated his private parlour. "'Now for your information,' said the resurrection man, somewhat impatiently. "'In the first place, have you discovered anything concerning Cranky Jim Cuffin?' "'My emissaries have been successful in every instance,' answered Tunks with a complacent smile. "'A man exactly corresponding with your description of Cranky Jem dwells in an obscure court in Dury Lane. Here's the address.' "'Any tidings of Margaret Flathers?' inquired Tidkins. 
she has married a young man who answers to your description of Skilgalley, and they keep a small chandlery shop in Pitfield Street, Hoxton Old Town. The name of Mitchell is over the door. Your lads are devilish sharp fellows, Bully Grand, said the resurrection man approvingly. With thirty-six emissaries all over London every day, it is not so very difficult to obtain such information as you required, returned Tunks. Moreover, you paid liberally in advance, and the boys will always be glad to serve you. Now for the next question, said Tidkins. Any news of the old man that Tomlinson goes to see sometimes? Yes, he lives in a small lodging in Thomas Street, Bethnal Green, was the answer. There is his address also. His name is Nelson. You best know whether it is his right one or not. That is no business of mine. Mr. Tomlinson regularly calls on him every Sunday afternoon and passes some hours with him. The old man never stirs out and is very unwell. Once more I must compliment your boys, exclaimed Tidkins, overjoyed with this intelligence. Have you been able to learn anything concerning Catherine Wilmot? There I have also succeeded, replied Mr. Tunks. My boys discovered that, after the trial of Catherine, she lunched with some friends at an inn in the Old Bailey, and shortly afterwards left in a post-chaise. She was accompanied by an old lady, and the chaise took them to Hounslow. And there, I suppose, all traces of them disappear, said the resurrection man inquiringly. Not at all. I sent Leary Lipkins down to Hounslow yesterday, and he discovered that Miss Wilmot is staying at a farmhouse belonging to a Mr. and Mrs. Bennet. Precisely, exclaimed the resurrection man, that Mrs. Bennet was a witness on the trial. I remember reading all about it. She was the sister of the woman whom Reginald Tracy murdered. The farm is only a short distance from Hounslow, observed the Bully Grand. Any one in the town can direct you to it. Most probably it was with this Mrs. Bennet that Miss Wilmot travelled in the post-chaise. Evidently so, said the resurrection man, but of that no matter. All I required was Catherine Wilmot's dress, and you have discovered it. Now for my last question. Have you ascertained whether it will be possible to bribe the clerk of the church where Lord Ravensworth and the Honourable Miss Adeline Enfield were married to tear out the leaf of the register which contains the entry of that union? I have learnt that the clerk is open to bribery, but he is a cautious man and will not allow himself to be sounded too deeply in the matter, was the answer. Then that business must regard me, observed the resurrection man. "'You have served me well in all these matters. Twenty pounds I gave you the other day. Here are twenty pounds more. Are you satisfied?' "'I have every reason to be pleased with your liberality,' returned the Bully Grand, folding up the banknotes with his delicate fingers. "'Have you any further commands at present?' "'Yes,' replied the Resurrection Man, after a few moments' consideration. "'Let one of your lads take a couple of notes for me.' While the Bully Grand proceeded to summon Leary Lipkins, the Resurrection Man seated himself at a desk which there was in the room and wrote the following note. The news I have just received are rather good than bad. The clerk is open to bribery, but is cautious. 
I will myself call upon him the day after tomorrow, and I will meet you afterwards at our usual place of appointment in the evening between six and seven. But you must find money somehow or another. I am incurring expenses in this matter and cannot work for nothing. Surely Greenwood will assist you. This letter was sealed and addressed to Gilbert Vernon, Esquire, number Stanford Strait. The resurrection man then penned another note which ran thus. I have discovered Catherine's address and shall call upon you the day after tomorrow at nine o'clock in the evening. Remain at home as you know the importance of the business. By the time he had concluded his correspondence, the bully grand had returned with Leary Lipkins. My good lad, said the resurrection man, addressing the latter, here are two notes which you must deliver this night this night mind the first is addressed and the person for whom it is intended never retires to bed until very late he will be up when you call at the house where he lodges in stamford street give the letter into his own hand you must then proceed to golden lane and in the third court on the right hand side of the way and in the fourth house on the left hand in that court an old woman lives you must knock till she answers you, and give her this second letter. I actually do not know her name, although I have dealings with her at present. Leary Lipkins promised to fulfill these directions, and immediately departed to execute them. Shortly afterwards, the resurrection man took his leave of the Bully Grand, and left the headquarters of the Forty Thieves. Henry Holford, who had never lost sight of the door of that house since he had seen the resurrection man enter it, and who had remained concealed in the shade of an overhanging frontage opposite for more than two hours, resumed his task of dogging that formidable individual. The resurrection man passed down Mint Street into the borough and called a cab from the nearest stand, saying to the driver, New Church, Bethnal Green, the moment Tidkins was ensconced within, and the driver was seated on his box, Henry Holford crept softly behind the cab. In that manner he rode unmolested until within a short distance of the place of destination, when he descended and followed the vehicle on foot. The cab stopped near the railings that surround the church, and the resurrection man, having settled the fare, hurried onwards into Globetown, Holford still dogging him, but with the utmost caution. Presently, Tidkins struck into a by-street at the eastern extremity of the Happy Valley. As our readers will remember, Globetown is denominated in the gazetteer of metropolitan thieves, and stopped at the door of a house of dilapidated appearance. In a word, this was the very den where we have before seen him conducting his infamous plots, and in the subterranean vaults of which Viola Chichester was imprisoned for a period of three weeks. Holford saw the resurrection man enter this house by the front door communicating with the street. He watched the windows for a few moments, and then perceived a light suddenly appear in the room on the upper floor. "'I have succeeded!' exclaimed Holford aloud. The villain lives there. I have traced him to his lurking hole, and Jem may yet be avenged. Then, in order to be enabled to give an accurate description of the house to the returned convict, Holford studied its situation and appearance with careful attention. 
he observed that it was two stories high, and that by the side was a dark alley. At length he was convinced that he should be enabled to find that particular dwelling again, or to direct Cranky Jem to it, without the possibility of error, and, rejoicing at being thus enabled to oblige his new friend, the young man commenced his long and weary walk back to Drury Lane. End of section 57